Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas this September 24th through the 25th at the National Faith Driven Entrepreneur Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Phil Vischer, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. The research says if you'll take 60 seconds to totally focus, first thing, on your spouse, have a tender touch, have a hug, have a kiss, and meet eye to eye and say, how was your day? Now, everybody listening to us can do that. That's so easy. And what that research shows is that if you do that for 60 seconds, it sets the tone, the tenor for your entire evening together. And you will begin to notice just an attitudinal change in your home because of that little 60 second investment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for downloading us once again. You know, in this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking with and about entrepreneurs. Duh. We are the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast, after all. But today, we're going to veer off of our normal business and strategy conversations and talk about life outside of our work, primarily with someone who's very important to us. Maybe if we're married, the most important person to us, our spouse. We have a guest today. His name is Les Parrott. Now, Les is an entrepreneur by his own standard. In fact, you might have met your spouse on his brainchild from a long time ago that he created, eHarmony. We all know that name, eHarmony, right? Still around, making great matches, bringing people together. Well, the Parrots have been for 20 plus years, married a lot longer than that, actually talking about how we can strengthen our marriage with the use of our time. They've been featured in USA Today and the New York Times. They've also appeared on CNN, the Today Show. Oprah's had them on. They're uh, number one New York Times bestselling set of authors. Their books have sold over two million copies in more than two dozen languages. But in addition to all of that, Les is a professor of psychology at Northwest University. And together, the two of them are founders of the Center for Healthy Relationships. They speak at churches all across the country all the time. But today, we're going to talk a little bit to Les about a video project in a book called The Time-Starved Marriage and how that fits in with the topic of being an entrepreneur. Les shared with us some of his insights about relationships and the wisdom and the time it takes to make sure that our marriages are strong. Let's stop listening to an intro and let's go listen right now to Les Parrott. Everybody, welcome back to the program. It's absolutely awesome to have Les Parrott on the podcast with us today. When I look back at Les's background and the things that he's been involved in, I don't know that there's been a more adventurous guy. I and mean, we're going to be talking about how to love on your spouse and your wife and invest in your marriage. And yet, if I don't go ahead and just jump into some of the things that I think are really, really unique about Les, then I'll deny you all of what I think will be some great stories. 
less in addition to being really, really intentional about working on marriages and teaching about them, has been a part of the immediate response team in Chernobyl. And I just, my family and I just finished watching the Chernobyl series on TV. So we're all kinds of geeked out about that. He was there in the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks. He's been on the Council Marines returning from Iraq. He does lots of very interesting things in interesting places. And we want to get into your background. We want to hear about your story. But I just, with Chernobyl on top of mind, what in the world was that like? What were you doing there? Yeah, well, I got to tell you, uh, Chernobyl was almost like, yeah, I guess I did do that. You were kind of reminding me because that was a long time ago, of course. I went over there on a uh, mission with World Vision to establish a mental health clinic, particularly for uh, the firefighters and then also for the children that were left without parents. And it was life-changing for sure. You know, you carried a Geiger counter around everywhere you went. I brought a jar of peanut butter, which is what I survived on for uh, over a week, and uh, even some of our own water. So it was a, a kind of a wild experience. And like you, I just watched that series on Chernobyl as well, and it just like brought back this rush of <laughs> memories that were like, man, I'm glad I don't need to do that again. That was really uh, incredible. But my heart just continues to ache for the people that have suffered through that, and especially the kids. I was in a psychiatric hospital one of my first days there, and of course, I'm a psychologist. And so I walked into this ward, and it was all these kids on mattresses, really thin mattresses on the floor, like side by side, you know, not in bed, just a room that had 50 kids in it. And, you know, your heart just breaks. And the kind of treatment, lack of medication, everything else, it was just like, wow, where do we even begin? So that was an experience that I've, uh, you know, carried with me for a, a long time. And like I said, I'm kind of glad you reminded me about it because that was a while ago. But yeah, that was that was a wild one. Yeah. So let's get into who you are and your background. You obviously have been in some very difficult situations, and some of those have been in helping to counsel marriages. We want to be very intentional on this show about encouraging the entrepreneurs in our midst to do an outstanding job of knowing and loving God, and then knowing and loving their spouses super well. And we probably don't spend enough time talking about it, but you're an expert on it. And I'd love for you to talk about how you've been doing that. How long have you been doing it? What's that look like? How to get started? And then we've all got a bunch of questions we want to ask you about that. But start at the beginning. Tell us how you got involved and and are committed to helping people work on their marriages. I'll do that. But let me begin with what is our BHAG. Probably everybody listening to us right now as an entrepreneur knows what a BHAG is, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And every entrepreneur I've ever encountered has one. And ours is to see the divorce rate reduced by a third in our lifetime. And that has been our BHAG for a long time. For 25 years ago, we started in this process. And I got to say, I'm more optimistic about that than I ever have been before. We see the divorce rate leveling off. Right now, primarily because of cohabitation, that's not the best indicator of uh, our success for sure. But the professional community knows more today about what it takes to build lifelong love than it ever has been before. And so our job really is, as my friend John Maxwell says, put the cookies on the bottom shelf. And that's really what our ministry is all about, taking the, the latest, the greatest, the most proven research when it comes to marriage and relationships 
and uh, being able to make it accessible so people can use it. So that's kind of what we do. And when I say we, I'm talking about my wife, Leslie, and me together. Leslie's a marriage and family therapist. I'm a psychologist, and we've been married for 33 years, I think, close to that. And yes, we have the same name. So it's a little confusing, but that's just the way it is. (laughs) So I'm Leslie, and she's Leslie. And it's even more complex because I'm the third. My dad's name is Leslie. My grandfather's name is Leslie. And that's why we named our first son, John. But we have this passion, this shared passion beyond just shared names to uh, really make a dent in the divorce rate and help couples enjoy lifelong love the way God intended. And particularly in the church, because historically the church has done no better than anybody else when it comes to marriage. Our divorce rates are just as high and so forth. So that's kind of what drives us. That's the mission. And by the way, I should just mention this also. For every single percentage point that we drop the divorce rate, the lives of more than a million children are positively impacted. So think about that and think about the ripple effect for generations. And think about what would happen even if we reduce the divorce rate just to double digits, just 10%. What would happen? Man, the life of our churches would be transformed, be one of the greatest social revolutions that we've ever seen. in the church or beyond, everything would be impacted from missions to children's ministries. So that's a a hard driving passion. That's what gets me and our team out of bed each morning is the big picture on that mission. But you asked, how did we get started? So Leslie and I, uh, we have one of those stories. We dated through high school. We dated all through college and we got married in Chicago after college. And we moved to Los Angeles to go to graduate school And uh, I went through a six-year graduate degree program in psychology and theology. So I earned a master's degree in theology at the same time I was getting a degree in psychology. And so to integrate those two, I always felt like, even early on as a college student, that theology kind of operates in a vacuum unless it's applied to human behavior. In fact, you might know at least the name John Ortberg. John and I were classmates at the same place, shared that same vision. And obviously, he's had an incredible preaching ministry, and I remember preaching at his church when we were both young bucks, just getting started and trying to figure this whole thing out about how to integrate psychology and theology in a meaningful and God-honoring way. But that's really what got us going. Leslie was earning her degree, a doctorate in marriage and family therapy and education. And when we finished that, I was at USC. I was in the psych hospitals down there which is really, you know, it's like the snake pit of psychiatric care in America. It really is. It's just the worst of the worst. My very first patient uh, (laughs) came in on a court order at the uh, psych hospital because he was driving down the Hollywood freeway in his convertible, standing up, which is not easy to do, totally naked, totally naked, and uh, shouting at the top of his lungs, make way for the Lord. And so that was my very first patient. So I cured him after a couple hours. And uh, they gave that to you because you had the degree in theology (laughs) as well? (laughs) No, it was just, that's just the kind of cases that hospitals had and still have. And it was also during the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, I remember there was a case that was in the news. It was a national kind of attention case that from a psychiatric patient biting a psychologist on the ward that I was working on mm. and it was on 60 minutes and all the rest. And so anyway, that was a really crazy time as well. And when we graduated, that was all, you know, 
internships and stuff like that. And then we moved up to Seattle where I took a position of postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington School of Medicine and also began teaching at a Christian university undergrad. And Leslie was also working in the counseling center and teaching as well. And I think it was in January or February, our first year there, some students, and I looked like the same age as the students at that point, uh, you know, just barely out of graduate school. And I'm working in the head injury unit and the burn unit during the day and then coming over and teaching in the afternoon at Seattle Pacific University at this Christian university. And some of the students said, hey, would uh, you two come over and speak at our residence hall? I said, what do you have in mind? They said, well, we'd like somebody to speak on how to fall in love without losing their mind. And I said, I, I like the title. I like what you guys are thinking about. And I said, how many students would be there? They said, well, if the whole floor shows up, we might have 25 students or so. I said, yeah, okay, what time? 10 o'clock. It was 10 o'clock on a Thursday. And so we go over, Leslie and I, go over to this residence hall, and there's this huge line coming out the front door. And we're thinking, man, what's happening here? This is interesting. I wonder what what else. We're not going to have anybody. They're all going to this other thing, whatever it is. Well, it turns out they were all lined up for this talk on how to fall in love without losing your mind. They came from other residence halls all around the campus, hundreds of students. And at that point, we realized, whoa. There is a palpable need for this generation when it comes to information on healthy relationships, on dating and otherwise. And that was a catalytic moment for us. It was really a pivot point because that's when we said, all right, let's do something more than a late night talk in a residence hall. And so that spring, we decided to launch an event. We raised a little bit of money and we launched an event that we called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And it was just for any, any dating couples, anybody that wanted to come and learn about the practical side of what it takes to build lifelong love. Now, at this point, Leslie and I had been married less than 10 years. And anyway, you know, we did what we could, bringing this information together. And again, we had this incredible turnout. And so we did it the next year and doubled in size. And it just kept growing like that. And I think it was in the third year, we said, well, we should probably write a book on this. And so we wrote a book called Saving Your Marriage before it starts. Little did we know what that would do to our lives because Oprah Winfrey got a hold of it and had us on her program and Barbara Walters on The View and Tom Brokaw and on down the list. Uh, We were on every talk show that you can imagine talking about marriage and it really heightened this platform. And that's when we began to formulate this BHAG that I mentioned. We thought we can really move the needle here and help couples get started on the right foot. And it came from a place of real passion because we felt like we didn't have much in the way of marriage preparation ourselves. And Leslie's dad is a pastor, my dad's a pastor, and yet we didn't have any pre-marriage counseling. In fact, the very first sentence of that book says, we never had pre-marriage counseling, but we spent the first year of our marriage in therapy. And that's the truth. So we really struggled that first year. And so it comes from a place of passion and obviously a lot of research that we've done on this topic by now. That book is been used by more than 2 million couples at this stage, and it's in its third edition, and it's in 25 different languages around the world. And now we have a a team of tens of thousands of people that have been certified and using an assessment that goes with it as well. So anyway, when you say what got us started, and that's probably more information than you wanted, that's that's really how it all began. It was just a couple of students that said, hey, come over here and talk to us. I'll add on to it real quickly. The other thing that we did about the same time that next fall is start a course on this undergrad campus. And we just called it Relationships 101. 
And that course, again, had just a, an incredible following. It's not easy to get a course approved on a campus through the deans and the committees and the provosts and all the rest. And so it was kind of a challenge to just get it up and running. But when we did, they said that we could teach the course if we wanted to, but we'd do it on our own schedule and without compensation and be pass-fail and all these other things. And anyway, we got a classroom late at night, had 12 chairs in it, and we just thought even if we can sign up six students, at least we'll be on our way. And uh, after the first three or four hours of registration, we had more than 300 students sign up for that class, oh, believe it. And there was a waiting list for 20 years to get into that class as long as we taught that class. We're no longer at the university because of some entrepreneurial things that we can talk about here in a minute. But uh, doesn't it speak to the hunger and thirst this generation and really all of us have for healthy relationships? Yeah, no, it, it very clearly does. Um, and I think maybe no more so than with with our audience. We had a guest on not too long ago that shared some really interesting research that entrepreneurs are two to 10 times, they need to narrow that down a little bit, but much more likely to suffer from different mental illnesses and two to three times more likely to experience divorce. So obviously you've got lots of advice. You've been thinking about this a long time, but you're in this unique spot in that not only you're a marriage counselor with lots and lots of years of doing this, being married yourself, but you're also an entrepreneur and to boot, you're an entrepreneur with your wife. So you are well acquainted with the stresses of launching something, although maybe not so much with others. I don't think there are many people listening to this that have that type of initial thought of like, maybe I'll go out and get six customers and you get 300, right? You've had some incredible, extraordinary success in customer acquisition. But nonetheless, you're well acquainted with the stresses of running this business and what it looks like for your marriage. And you've undoubtedly counseled lots of business owners and entrepreneurs What's the sense that you have of what they're struggling with? And what would you encourage our listening audience with about how to focus on their marriages? Well, I love your question. And yeah, I can certainly identify with it, uh, even as recently as the last few uh, weeks and months of life in a uh, business acquisition that I've been through that was just one of the most stressful things I've done. But mm. let me back up from that and just uh, uh, tell you a quick story. My friend, Neil Warren, Neil Clark Warren, and his wife, Marilyn, living in Los Angeles, beautiful home up over the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, had us over for dinner, Leslie and me. And uh, we'd gone out to have some fun and kind of it was a later dinner that Marilyn made. And we're sitting around their dining room table and just enjoying each other's company. And, and this was more than 20 years ago. Neil said, hey, you know this new thing called the Internet? And we're like, Yeah. He said, I wonder if we could use that to reduce the divorce rate because we share the same BHAG, you know? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I wonder like if we could match people online, like for a better match so that they could have more success in their relationship. And say that again. I said, it'll never work. People will never get <laughs> yeah. together with people online. Well, that's, I'm kidding. that's what I said basically that night. I said, Neil, I think you've lost your marbles. Now, you have to remember that 20 years ago, the Internet was the Wild West. It was nutty. It was just weird stuff going on and uh, not trustworthy in any fashion. Yet we had all this knowledge. We had all this research on how people tend to meet and where they tend to meet and so forth. And Neil had written a book called Finding the Love of Your Life. Obviously, we had written Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts and and anyway, that conversation that night turned into a really late night discussion that turned into uh, several years of work. And we launched eHarmony, 
together. Really the first of its kind, the first thing on the internet to help couples make a serious match. And it was an uphill battle. I got to tell you, we, uh, in launching a company, I'm sure lots of our listeners are going, okay, yeah, what happened next? And well, we look to the city. Where's the most ripe, where's the driest tinder, you know, that we can go test this. And it turned out to be Dallas. And so we moved to Dallas for several months and we tried our best to get churches, pastors on board, singles pastors, you know, that have all these singles ministries and and we'd offer them a free lunch and free books, and we just couldn't even get them to come meet with us. And it was so discouraging. And we just thought, what in the world? And it was suspect because, first of all, it was a for-profit company. You know, it wasn't, in quote, a ministry. And secondly, it was on the Internet, which was just the weirdest place of all to find the love of your life yeah. at that time. And so that was really discouraging. In fact, I remember being in a hotel room with Neil and Marilyn, less than an hour there. And I remember Neil literally putting his hands on his face with his elbows on his knees and weeping. This is never going to work. And we had just been through a big round of funding. We had Sequoia. It was just like, oh, my goodness, we have failed after all of this. It's just not happened. And we learned an important lesson, and that is that sometimes the church isn't ready for something that's as innovative as as you might guess. And so with the resources that we had, we sparked some interest beyond the boundaries of the church. And we set off to, this was going to be specifically for churches, for Christians, because of our BHAG. And I won't bore you with the rest of the story, but as you probably know, that company went on to have unimaginable success financially and uh, is still alive and well. But that process that was so difficult on our marriage, here we are trying to help married couples It was so stressful for us because, as every entrepreneur knows, you get obsessed. You get completely obsessed with your dream and your vision of what you want to do with this company that you're starting. And uh, it becomes like your mistress, right? And that can't help but to drive a wedge between you. So when you give me that information about the divorce rate is higher and so forth, I have no problem believing that. It's not the first time I've heard that either. And so you have to really be intentional. And if there's any message I have to everybody that's listening to us today, that's an entrepreneur out there, it's that word intention. If you want to succeed as an entrepreneur and succeed as a husband or or a spouse, you've got to be intentional. And that can be a challenge because, um, you know, back in those days, 20 years ago, we didn't have cell phones to be distracted by even when we were on a date night, you know? And so even today, it's all the more important to be intentional. So I guess that's my first word of wisdom out there. That's a good word. I love the eHarmony story. I think any of us who have tried to work in a business that's creating a category, because really at the time, I remember eHarmony, you were creating the category. You know, it wasn't like you were just creating a service. And, you know, pioneers take arrows, And I think your story is an encouraging one to those that are trying to create a category. And to this day, I mean, for what it's worth, if you talk to anybody who's in the dating or matching business, they still talk about the eHarmony algorithm being best of class, you know, so that legacy is still there. Well, I appreciate that. And even today, it's, it's the place to go to find the true love of your life. There's other things that are free and, you know, Bumble and all the rest that are convenient, but we really <laughs> make you pay the price, not just with your dollars, but with your time. We go through a, a pretty extensive profile on who you are, your personality and everything else. It takes a lot of time just to get ready 
for us to put you onto the site. And so, uh, again, it's, it's just an anomaly. It's not like anything else that's out there. And I'm sure people are wondering, so did it work? Did it matter? Did you change the divorce rate as a result of <laughs> eHarmony? And uh, I have some pretty incredible news on that front. And here's what we know from an independent study that was done at the University of Chicago just a few years ago. It was a longitudinal study, meaning that it was over the course of several years, seven years in this case, looking at couples that matched on that site versus, as we say, couples in the wild that match in other ways. And what we found is the divorce rate for those that were matched through our system in comparison to a 50% divorce rate, which is kind of the average that people like to quote out there. You can quibble about it, but it's, it's up there. But instead of a 50% divorce rate, it's a 2.3%. And just to make sure you're hearing me correctly, that's 2.3% divorce rate. So yeah, our algorithm worked and, and we're pretty proud of it. And a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, as you can imagine, through the years that, like I said, 20 years ago, that was going on. Wow. Wow. Thank you for setting that BHAG 20 years ago, um, <laughs> because that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, I want to keep on the vein of the marriage thing, because you have a very interesting phrase that you use where you say a marriage can be slipping into the future. And I immediately thought, you know, Steve Miller band and fly like an eagle, right? Time keeps on slipping into the future. But you say a marriage can slip into the future. What do you mean by that? Well, you're referencing our book, Your Time-Starved Marriage. And in addition to doing entrepreneurial things, Les and I write and speak around the country together. And this book, as is true with most of our books, came out of our own need. We just felt like, uh, man, we cannot seem to capture quality time together. And I mentioned my friend John Maxwell. John and I wrote a book called 25 Ways to Win with People. And one of the things I learned in that project with John and he's been a longtime mentor of mine. And he said, Les, you can't give leftovers to Leslie. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, if you're like most guys, you go through your day and all these cool things that happen, cool meeting and you get this great phone call and you have this win over here and you share it with everybody in the office or whatever. And by the time you get home, you're just kind of depleted and exhausted. And hey, what's for dinner? And where's the mail? And she says, how was your day? Fine. And you just kind of give her the leftovers of your energy. And so <laughs> when he said that, it was just like a, a wake-up call. And I realized I am. I'm giving my best time to other people, not to my spouse. And because of that, Leslie, of course, <laughs> you know, was like, go, John, right? She was like, yes, <laughs> great, great methods there, John. And out of that little kind of word of wisdom came this idea for this book, Your Time Starved Marriage, and it set us on a course to really recover the moments we've been missing together, the time that was slipping into the future. And uh, yes, I'm glad you're of a generation that identifies Steve Miller band with that. Uh, I appreciate that reference. But we thought, how do we do this? How do we get practical? And so we went to the bookstore. You know, we thought, oh, find a book on managing time marriage. Well, there's tons of time management books and some classics out there on time management. And you go to the marriage section, you can't find anything on time. You know, you find stuff on in-laws and sex and conflict and communication and on down the list, nothing on time. And one of the things that we first discovered in our own research is it's the second biggest complaint that couples have in their marriage, whether they're entrepreneurial or not. It's the second biggest complaint. The first is communication. We just don't communicate the way we want to. But second is we don't have the time that we'd like to with each other. 
And so that was a compelling reason for us to dig down even deeper into the research and write this book, Your Time Star of Marriage, because we wanted to recover the moments that were slipping into the future. And that's exactly what we did. And for us personally, it may be one of the most important book projects that we've ever done because it really changed the way we interact. Are there a few tenets of that book that you would want to share with our listeners? Well, let me give you one real quick practical thing that everybody can do starting today out there, and then I'll give you one that goes a little bit more in depth. But uh, do you know what the single most important minute of your marriage is? You tend to kind of just sideswipe it every day. But this single minute can make or break your evening tonight with your spouse. It's that single minute that you have, that 60 seconds that you have when you come home at the end of the day and greet each other. And like I said, if you were like me, working hard and you're coming home late and you're on the phone, probably even as you're walking in the door, you just kind of come in and where's the mail and, hey, you know, give me the report. How are the kids? Any homework tonight that I got to be concerned with? What's for dinner? All that kind of stuff is just a jumble of, of messy communication, right? And what the research says, if you'll take 60 seconds to totally focus first thing on your spouse, have a tender touch, have a hug, have a kiss and meet eye to eye and say, how was your day? Now, everybody listening to us can do that. That's so easy. And what that research shows is that if you do that for 60 seconds, it sets the tone, the tenor for your entire evening together. And you will begin to notice just an attitudinal change in your home because of that little 60 second investment. And so this book is chock full of stuff like that, really practical things that you can do. So that's the simple one. The other thing that really changed for us in kind of recouping the moments that we've been missing together as a couple was to understand our time styles. And this was the result of a lot of research on our side because we haven't seen this anywhere else. But God made each one of us with a unique way of processing time. And the simple way, just to kind of visualize this for our listeners out there, is to think of a continuum that's, that's scheduled and unscheduled. And one is not better than the other. It's just kind of how God made it. It's in the DNA of our personality. And so just think about it, just self-diagnose. Are you scheduled or unscheduled? Which of those would you say you are? Oh, I'm definitely scheduled. Henry, William, what are you guys? I'm, de- I'm definitely... Uh... I'm in constant conflict between the two. <laughs> I want to be unscheduled. I want to be unscheduled. I'm okay. pretty scheduled. So if I asked you, hey, can we have lunch next Thursday? But it has to be at 1.30 for me. Can we make that happen? There's some place you would go to look at a schedule, at a calendar, right? To figure that out. Correct? Totally. Absolutely. It's in my you hand all the time. Yep. It's in my hand. Yeah. I'd look right okay. there at my calendar on my phone. So an unscheduled person would kind of look up to the right a little bit with their eyes and go, 1.30 next Thursday. Yeah, that feels good. Let's do that. Right? They wouldn't consult anything necessarily. All right? So that's the difference. So as you're listening to me, self-diagnose, scheduled or unscheduled, and then think of are you, this is the second continuum, and are you present-oriented or future-oriented? In other words, do you get energy out of the here and now and what's happening in this moment? Or do you get energized by what's around the corner and what you have planned and what's coming up? Which one gives you more energy, the present or the future? I'm embarrassed to tell you that it's the, the future. I don't think that's the way to live, but that's been my, my course. Me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Live in the future, miss the present too many times. 
So nearly every entrepreneur is, okay? And by the way, uh, I don't know which one of you said, I know it's not the right way to live, but unfortunately that's the way it is. If I was in front of you, I would give you what I call a guilt-free drop. Quit saying that to yourself. It's not the right way to live. That's how God made you. God hardwired you for the future. That's a gift that you bring into your marriage and into every other relationship. One's not right or wrong. It's just how things are. All right? So most of you have said, I'm scheduled and I'm future-oriented. So that puts you into a category that is also my category. No big surprise here. We entrepreneurs, we stick together, right? And uh, we're planners. We love a plan. Let's dream about the future, but let's get concrete and let's get scheduled and let's implement a plan that's going to succeed. Now, if you're just the opposite of that, maybe you're married to somebody who is more subjective. They're unscheduled, like my wife, Leslie, and they're present-oriented, like my wife, Leslie. Well, they're what we call, in their time style, an accommodator. Not a planner, but an accommodator. In other words, they accommodate time. They might have something that they're supposed to do, but hey, it's a really sunny day in Seattle. Let's forget that and go to the park. It's a great day to go to the park, right? Now, if you're a planner, you go, no, no, we got to stick with the schedule, right? And Leslie will say sometimes we joke about this because she's drank so much coffee at Starbucks and she'll go, hey, uh, we got a few minutes. Let's go down to Starbucks. And I'll say, we don't have time. She'll say, it's just five minutes from here. I'll say, well, it's not five minutes. It's 20 minutes. She says, it feels like five minutes. Well, I don't care what it feels like. It's 20 minute walk (laughs) down there. And so that's the difference between an accommodator and a planner. If you're present oriented and still scheduled, you're what we call a processor. And a processor is the person that I often liken it to like a a helpline or something. Remember when we used to have those for computers and stuff and you'd call in and hey, I can't get this thing to happen. Okay, and, and it's just, they're so invested. They're so fully present. And then the clock reaches a certain point and it's like having lunch with a friend and they're like, oh, hey, it's one o'clock. Boom, it's like they don't know you anymore. They're on to the next thing. They're a processor. And then the last quadrant is the person that's unscheduled and future-oriented and they're dreamers. And so as entrepreneurs, if you're not a planner, you will tend to be a dreamer. And unfortunately, those are the entrepreneurs that typically are not as productive as the planner because they're always casting a vision. And so they really need people on their team that can make those visions come true, that can get concrete in that. But that was that little, I've I've skated over that pretty quickly here to give you insight into these four time styles, but that was the game changer for us. And so we have a full chapter built on that in this book, Your Time Start Marriage. And by the way, people can go to LessonLeslie.com to find this book, and there's a His Her Workbook set as well. But that little insight of your time style was such a gift to our own relationship. There's a school of thought in psychology that says awareness is curative. In other words, once you're aware of something, then you can do something about it. Mm. And that's what this Mm. did for us. It was just like looking in the mirror, and I was like, oh, I never saw it that way before. And I always used to get frustrated with Leslie because she wasn't more scheduled. Well, she's a gift to this relationship of our marriage because she's not scheduled, right? She has something, and as iron sharpens iron, as Proverbs says, we help each other to become more whole and healthy. 
And so anyway, does that make sense? The time. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Totally makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we'll link something to the book on our site so our listeners can go back and get that. I think knowing where you are in that quadrant, many years ago, someone said to me that, especially in our marriages and our relationships, it's the commonalities, the common that brings us together. It's the differences that keep it interesting. And I think what you've given there in those four quadrants is we need to know where we are. We need to know where our spouse is so that we can see the differences and the commonalities. And I'm going to make sure that I, uh, I start to practice a better one minute. Uh, I'll have to tell my wife that you um, recommended it because if I just come in tomorrow and do that, she's going to go, okay, what have you done? What are you going <laughs> to? <laughs> so, uh, right. so what I, are you setting I, me up for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's got to become a habit, right? It's a routine. We often talk about carving a new groove into a relationship. We tell newlyweds, you know, choose your reps carefully because you're going to be in them for a long time, right? <laughs> but this is a way to carve a new groove into your relationship no matter how long you've been married. But I love that little quip that you say because it is those commonalities that bring us together, the differences that make it interesting. But it's also those differences that can drive us apart, of course. And that's why... It comes back to intention. Once you are aware, then you get intentional by doing things like practicing the single minute that matters most in your marriage and those kinds of things. Les, uh, William here. Thanks so much for joining us today. I feel like we're just getting started and uh, we might have to beg you for some more of your time later. But as we do come to the close of our episode, one of the things we love to just ask all of our listeners, if, if you wouldn't mind just letting us in a little bit to where God has you right now, what he might be teaching you potentially in the scripture, is there a, a verse or a lesson or a, you know, a part of the word of God that may be coming alive to you in a new way, even today or in this season of life uh, that you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners? Um, yeah, there's so many different places I could go with that. I, I'll mention that one of them is that just keeps coming back to me. It comes out of Ephesians where Paul talks uh, again and again about experiencing the breadth and depth of God's love and the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love, as it says in the message. And that really is the starting point for all of us, entrepreneurs or not, that struggle with having healthy relationships. And I got to tell you, there's some entrepreneurs, they're just incredible salespeople, right? And they're so smooth with other people, but they can still have rocky relationships because they're in sales mode. There's other entrepreneurs, we all have different ways of being entrepreneurs. And they all have risks of kind of faltering on the relationship front. And so I mentioned that to say, when you come back to wanting to build healthy relationships, it comes back to really understanding, not just with your head, but with your heart, feeling it deep in your bones, in your spirit, that God loves you as if you're the only person on the planet to love. And that's not a new insight for me. It's one that I continue to come back to because it's new every day to keep saying that. And even in this conversation, one of you said, well, I know that's not the best way to do it. And I feel guilty about that. And blah, blah, blah. God loves you as if you're the only person on the planet to love. And our next book is called Healthy Me, Healthy Us. And do you remember I told you we had a uh, course on our campus for a while, for 20 years or so, Relationships 101? Yeah. And on the very first night of that course, we tell these students, there's no pop quiz, there's no midterm, there's no final because it's a pass-fail course. But we tell them on the very first night, we want you to write down at least one single sentence. Whether you take any notes the rest of the semester, at least write down this single sentence. And we tell them how it'll revolutionize their relationships. And the sentence is this, if you try to build intimacy or a connection with another person, 
before you've done the difficult work of getting healthy, of getting whole on your own, all your relationships become an attempt to complete yourself. And I usually repeat the sentence three or four times. Well, yeah, that's a a good example of that compulsion for completion that uh, you complete me is such a misnomer. It's great. It's a romantic thing to say. But if you really buy into that, that this person can complete you, you're setting yourself up for serious heartache because nobody can do that because ultimately your compulsion for completion is met in a relationship with your heavenly father, not with this other person that sure, they may help you on the path to wholeness, but it's not their job. And so many of us get so frustrated in a marriage relationship because we think this person is supposed to do that for us. They're supposed to make up for all I'm lacking, at least at an unconscious level. And so we lean in on each other and it looks romantic at the beginning, but then we start to pound down on each other. And Hey, I thought you were supposed to, if you were a good husband, if you were a good wife, you'd do this for me. Right. And so I'm passionate about that these days is helping people really get healthy themselves because, and this is the big aha for me, at least, your relationships can only be as healthy as you are. Therefore, the most important thing you'll ever do for your relationships, whether it's your marriage or your colleagues at work or the people on the church board that you serve with or even a stranger, the most important thing you will ever do in your relationships is work on who you are in the context of them. And like I said, for me, that begins with standing firm on how incredible God's love is to us. As we come to the close of this week's episode, we'd like to spotlight a ministry that is locking arms with faith-driven entrepreneurs. This week, we want to share about our friends at Right Now Media at Work. They're on a mission to help your team flourish in every area of life, wherever life takes you. With their app of more than 20,000 on-demand videos on topics like leadership and teamwork and professional development, from leaders like Patrick Lencioni, Liz Bohannon, and John Acuff, Thousands of businesses like Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, Interstate Batteries, and even the United States Air Force chaplains are using Right Now Media at Work to serve their teams. You can learn more about Right Now Media at Work by visiting them at rightnowmediaatwork.org. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco.